This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical advice. It exists only to entertain. Also, this episode will deal with some true crime stories involving sex workers and the mention of abortion, so do with that information what you will. In 1891, in upstate New York, a man walks into a chemical supply storefront in Saratoga, New York. Hello there. Good afternoon. Welcome to Al's Chemical Supply Depot. Our athletes are more than basic. How can I help you? Yes, well, I'm in the market for some uh, some soap. Well, we don't have soap, but we got a lot of basic chemicals. You could probably use them to make your own. Oh, well, sure. I'll take some of those. Some of what? Which chemicals? Um, soap chemicals? Hey, man, do you care to name a few? Hmm, lavender? Oh, man, that's a scent. Uh, you know, never mind the soap. I'll just get that elsewhere. Um, do you happen to have any chloroform? Sure do. How much do you need? Mm, a few bottles, I guess. All right. I imagine you'll like to see my credentials, of course. Nah, it's not necessary. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, it's the 1890s. There's no laws or regulations or anything like that. Oh, well, excellent. Will that be all? Oh, you know, while I'm here, do you, do you know where I can buy some rags? How big do you need? I mean, like, you know, like about face size rags? Nah, I'd go to the general store down the road. Excellent, excellent. Okay. Oh, oh, I'm I'm running low on on arsenic. Do you have some of that? Sure do. Elemental or well, well, whatever's easiest to ingest. What? Oh, nothing, nothing. I mean, I mean, you, you know what? Never mind the arsenic. Oh, okay. So just the chloroform then. Yes. Oh, wait. I forgot. Oh, let me get it here. The missus sent me with a list. Ah, uh, she did. Did she? Yep. Got it right here. That's right. Let's see. I'll need. Uh, 500 strychnine pills, too. Whoa there. What are you going to do with those? Well, we've, we've got a rat problem. So you're going to give them pills? Uh, yep. Yeah, that's about what we're going to do. You do realize that that's enough strychnine to kill lots of people, right? Oh, is it toxic to people? I had no idea. Yeah, very. Oh, it is. Okay, wow. Uh, I'll tell her to be careful with them then. For the rats. Rats, yes, exactly. Ah, it seems to be on the level. I'll ring these up. Great, good. Well, uh, looks like I'm all set. All right, that about does it. Here's your chloroform and your 500 strychnine pills for your wife. They're our rat problem, yes. Yeah, well, I hope it does a trick for you and your wife. You know, what did you say your name was again? Her? Oh, well, I didn't, but her name is... Uh, Gretchenella. Mm -hmm. Gretchenella. It sounds like you made that up on the spot. Nope, nope. It's a real name. Her people are, are Dutch, you know. Uh, all right. That explains it. Okay. Well, time for me to go then. Uh, where did you say I can buy those rags for the chloroform? Yeah, it's down that way. General store. Well, I'll, I'll head there next to continue making completely legal purchases of things. Great. Off you go. For historians, for historians, for historians. We look at cases throughout history. It's just Max and Larry Mac and me.
Welcome everyone, this is Poor Historians, a podcast delving into the archives of medical history. As three emergency physicians, we will explore the unusual ailments, treatments, physicians, and all related material having to do with the healing arts. I'm Max, and I'm joined here by my good friends and colleagues, Aaron and Mike. Gentlemen, are you ready for the medicine meets true crime crossover that you know you always wanted? Wait, what's medicine meat? <laughs> Valentine's nice. meat juice. Go back nice. to the Ooh, that's nice. right. Yeah, I love meat juice. <laughs> uh, we see a lot of true crime, actually, right? I mean, yeah. sort of, yeah, not unusual. And we are kind of detectives. This is more individual bit. crimes, though. This isn't like crimes against humanity, even when, when the intention might have been good. Yeah, true. I'm still looking forward to my medicine meats. Mm. <laughs> shout outs. Uh, I have a completely non-self-serving shout out, but it does go to the three-time back-to-back-to-back, three-peat, D-level, beer league, hockey phenomenon known as the Bombers. This team, of which I should say I am a member, has been listening to, supporting, and telling everyone they know about the show from the beginning, so it is probably about time that they receive some props for that, and I'm sure they're responsible for at least some degree of our audience expansion. I appreciate it. Gentlemen who definitely weren't salty about not having a shout out to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I played with the Bombers for, was it a couple games? I think you did one, you did one um, summer season, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. And I remember there was a, there was a play. This is for all the hockey fans out there. I, I think I just, it might've been the first game and nobody knew, like, you never know how good someone is when they they come in and for yeah, some well, you're reason, you're a new I guy played, to the team. That's yeah, a team that's I, been together for years at that point. So yeah. Yeah. And I played really well that game. And I remember coming into the zone and I can't remember, you know, one of the guys had the puck and I opened up at the top of the circle and I got a pass right on the stick, you know, go top corner goal. And I think from that moment on, everyone thought I was way better than I was. And that just like <laughs> freakishly happened. Like there's no way I could do it again. <laughs> oh, they, they still tell tales of that story. <laughs> That's all we talk about every game, oh. more or less. Well, my hockey team always talks about Max and how, remember that game you played for us? Said you you stopped like, I don't know, probably 200 shots. No. <laughs> it was a lot of shots. I would... It was like, and everyone's like, holy crap, that guy's good. Well, fortunately, that was back when I was playing goalie. And fortunately, thanks to my longstanding term playing on the Bombers team, I as their goalie at one point, before we were the three-peat back-to-back-to-back-to-back champions, I took a lot lot of shots. So I got pretty good at goaltending, as it were. And uh, I was able to translate that over to your team. And you're welcome. Yes, thank you. So with those positive vibes cast out there, maybe Seth can get off my back and stay out of the penalty box or avoid going off sides all the time. Just saying, buddy. Any, uh, any other shout-outs you guys can think of? I want to shout-out to all the listeners out there. Nice and direct. I like it. Well cultivated. Listening for. uh, Thank you for having ears for that. Yes, we appreciate that. Well, you don't know. It's a global show. (laughs) Maybe some earless people listening. Okay. Okay. Wow. Let's move on. All right. So. For today's episode, we are going to return a bit to the popular era of medical history for a true crime involving a very unscrupulous physician whose evil deeds did span a few different continents, countries, and his eventual capture was really frighteningly delayed given given the obvious nature of some of his crimes, but there's a charming angle of old-timey legal screw-ups and oversights that 
is at least partially to blame. So it wasn't because this guy was a particularly good criminal. I can assure you of that, but we will we will get through it as we are here. So a note, I am going to refer to him either as Thomas, as Neil, or Dr. Neil, because that is how the newspapers of his time did refer to him. His full name is actually Dr. Thomas Neil Cream. And considering this story will veer into the... <laughs> world of murder and sex work there's no way i'm going to repeat dr cream over and over again <laughs> you i can literally see mike's gears turning right now can't wait oh what way the papers did that by muting you is that like a, a convention they're like there's no way we can put dr cream i think page. we need to That's... not oh, well you know what we should uh, mm-hmm. reach out to um gray's anatomy and see if they could write in a new character and make and call him dr <laughs> creamy <laughs> There's Dreamy, right? Dreamy. Is it Dreamy or isn't there a McFlurry? Dr. McDreamy and McDreamy. Dr. McDreamy. And Creamy. <laughs> you know, somehow that was surprisingly more G-rated than I thought it was going to yeah. be. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm well done. doing my best. Yeah. Cultivated. You know, my, my thought is like, if you can make some jokes that are out of the gutter, it means you, you might actually have some like comedic skill. Okay. If you just say penis and poop and... Yeah, vagina. Other words that I have to <laughs> yeah. bleep out later. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk about Dr. Neil, as it were. Creamy. Thomas Neil Cream, I'll refer to him fully here at the beginning, was born on May 27th, 1850 in Glasgow, Scotland. And four years later, his father, William Cream, I suppose, took a job as a manager of a shipbuilding and lumber firm outside of Quebec City in Canada. So going across the pond there. Thomas, or Dr. Neil as it will be, was not so good at his father's trade, however. And so, though he does apprentice for several years during those those type of years in your formative life, he doesn't really amount to much of a lumber person or shipbuilder. So what else do you do in 1872? You got nothing else? Go to a medical school. Did his, uh, his brother Richard Cream take over the wood business? <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that he wasn't good at laying wood. Dr. Cream. I expect that from Mike and not from Aaron. It was really good, though. <laughs> Reasonable. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'm sorry. I'd reset. Oh, boy. What else can a young man do? As I said, he went to medical school. So he goes to McGill University in Montreal. He is there on a full hockey scholarship. He what, what? excels in French poetry. No, seriously? Lies. <laughs> that is... <laughs> That was that was, was ice a, hockey even a thing in the 1800s? You know, I I'm oh, not going to claim to know the they... entire history of ice hockey, but I know that one of the earliest Stanley Cups was at the turn of the 20th century. I am sure that this 1872 period is around the time that it's being appropriated from, I believe, indigenous cultures. That oh wow, that... more of a form. That's not the focus of this podcast to know hockey history, but I am well, embarrassed that the... I don't know more about it first recorded public hockey game was actually in Montreal's Victoria skating rink in 1875 between two teams of McGill university students. No way. That's what Google says. Did I fail correctly into an almost true joke? Yes. It's funny. Yeah. Cause hockey (laughs) actually means hockey means stands with two fists. No, it doesn't. (laughs) doesn't. You know, those, uh, what dances with wolves, right? Stands with a fist was the name that they gave them. Anywho, it was a fighting joke. So Dr. Neal is noted for being very stylish, having lots of money and liking to show that off. And well, his dad had lots of money, so therefore he had lots of money. And he has a reputation for proudly displaying his wealth and going about as kind of a big shot. 
And he graduates from McGill actually with honors, with merits, uh, and does quite well in that respect. At the commencement address, I like this little tidbit, he did give it on a topic of, quote, the evils of malpractice in the medical profession, end quote. Given one might see this address as the newly minted Dr. Neal giving his classmates advice as they head out into the world of medical practice, let's just put a pin of irony in this little moment for oh, later. What malpractice was in 1872. Like, Don't sold them in half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bar, <laughs> the threshold for malpractice is probably really high. I, what we've read. You could do anything. That would be anybody. an interesting history topic. When did that start becoming a like, yeah. cultural norm, you know? Truly, like, yeah, Phineas Gage gets a tamping rod through his head and the doctor's poking his finger in the hole. And <laughs> like, like nowadays, probably that's be like, hey, standard probably of should... care. Yeah. Dr. Cream, uh, if you've been treated by him, uh, reach out to this law firm because if he stuck his finger in a hole in your head, you might be entitled to retribution. Retribution? Restitution. Both may. In this time period, I think <laughs> yeah, retribution was actually a legal entity. Well, he wrote his thesis on the effects of chloroform in case there weren't enough red flags in the story. <laughs> it's just, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's like sketchy, the resume right here. Right there in the open, isn't it? I feel like yeah, he's absolutely. gaslighting us. Yeah. <laughs> well, this brings us to a young lady named Flora Eliza Brooks. So just after graduation, she meets and is seduced by Dr. Neal. And... Can I just ask a quick question? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a formality. In history, it seems like everybody's referred to with their three names formally, mm-hmm. but there were way less people. On there were actually band. way fewer people. Well, there are way fewer people. <laughs> Thank I you, Max. I, I can't unhear it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, is it normal for this time? Because everybody's referred to as three names, and I just feel like there are far fewer people on the planet, but it, it, nice. it most likely is just a formality rather than... I mean, like, I'm guessing so. It's also, if you're writing about it, you tend to be more formal than speaking about it. So it might be why it seems that way as okay. you're yeah. looking back. Mm-hmm. What it really means is all three of us need third names. Well, yeah. I have three names. I just don't refer to myself with the three. But now yeah. I guess you could have a unique hashtag. So you don't really need three names. You could just have like, <laughs> you know, uh, EDDoc69. Like, you know that that's me. <laughs> I would assume it was. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yes. uh, Flora, her father happens to own a fancy hotel in Waterloo, Quebec. And as Flora is uh, dating, courting, or being courted by, I should say, Dr. Neal, she becomes pregnant. And Dr. Neal ends up performing an abortion. So there are definitely two things to note here. One is that I never said Flora and Neal were married at this point, right? Not a big deal to me or really in the modern age, but... It's certainly different culturally back then in the mid to late 18th century. And uh, the second point is that abortion was illegal in Canada at the time and somehow still happened, which seems strange, right? Mm. Anywho, she becomes ill following the procedure. So does a procedure. She becomes, it sounds like almost deathly ill at that point. I don't know whether it was infection, blood loss or what happened there. But her father was not happy, to say the least. He goes to confront Dr. Neal with a firearm, and as a result, Dr. Neal feels a little bit compelled to marry Flora, and he does so. And it's not really clear if it's right there on the spot or it was like the next day, but it happened very soon after the gun was put in his face. Yeah. Isn't isn't this the phrase shotgun wedding? Isn't that what it means? This is probably a musket. Yeah. musket wedding. <laughs> musket wedding. Maybe a rifle. Could be a rifle at this time. 
It'd be new if he had some he's money. He's standing in the entryway, like, packing Real powder lock. in the Cash front of his lock? musket with a long rod. He's like, I'm going to get you. <laughs> Got one shot. You're going to marry Flora. And if you don't marry Flora, you're going to marry Fauna. <laughs> wow. That's a good line. Off the mm-hmm. yeah, you know what? Off the cuff, I'll give you that one. Yeah. But is this, this is upstate New York, so they didn't sound like... No, no, this is... No, this is in, oh, this is in Montreal. Quebec. Up. Oh, boy. We There's have probably a lot of ha-ha-ha's. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 Like their greeting. So apparently after the wedding, he, uh, Dr. Neil, decided, you know what? I need a little bit of me space. I'm going to go check out London, England. And he does so. He goes to London, England to continue his medical studies. And, uh, well, his wife and her family never saw him again. Go figure. <laughs> Just so, ghost them? Mm-hmm, yep. Before it was cool. So even though Flora recovered from the post-procedural illness, the... Basically, she developed either bronchitis or tuberculosis the following year in 1877 and ultimately died from that. It's not really clear what the condition was. But while that part of the story, I don't know, may not be unusual for the time, given how easy it was to be a scumbag that had money and you could just pop off to another part of the world, it should be noted that Thomas, who certainly was an obviously devoted absentee husband with a medical degree in pharmaceutical knowledge, was apparently prescribing or sending her some medication to help with the cough and told her not to take anything Mm. else. Mm. Now, now eventually, her doctor becomes suspicious of this fact uh, and that Dr. Neal may have been possibly, almost definitely, I would say, involved here. Yeah, but never followed through with his hunch. And so her her personal physician later said, you know what? I think it was probably foul play, but he never was able to do anything about it in the meantime or just never did anything about it. So Dr. Neil goes on uh, while he's over in uh, London, England, to complete training with the Royal Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons in Edinburgh in 1878 and then he returns to london ontario just to be even more confusing when you're reading like three (laughs) different articles about this as to where in the world he is so we return to canada at this point and he starts his career as a physician in private practice back in london canada wait where's ontario compared to is that the same province sorry canadians i apologize Um, to all canadians wait (laughs) did you just ask if ontario was the same province as quebec if London is the same. Yeah. Yes, I did. Yes. Don't, <laughs> don't hate me. Please reply to Aaron with your complaints. No, so definitely a different province. Uh, the one north and uh, east of uh, Detroit, Michigan. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Uh, see, there at least. Where Ontario oh, is. It's also the one that's closest to me. So you'd think mm-hmm. I would know. Mm-hmm. My favorite Saskatchewan. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, Saskatchewan. I think it's from Strange Brew. Oh, definitely. I, yeah. Well, also, it's got the most memorable capital. What's the capital? Regina. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Uh, No, you're not. I'm sorry, Canada. (laughs) All right. Well, we're back in London, Canada. And uh, that's London, Ontario. And so Dr. Neil's off in doing his medical practice thing. And it's off to a rousing start because considering he managed to gather patients to his office, despite the fact that very early in this career, he is charged with pleading guilty to practicing without a license under Ontario's Medical Act. He has not stopped at any point, and he's able to continue. <laughs> doing, is doing is this around thing. the time you could just, like, write your own license and I mean, say, I'm, yeah, okay. Like I did in the back room? Yeah, it's <laughs> the one that's hanging on your wall with the crayon. No, mm-hmm. the one that I printed up that said that I'm the premier diagnostician. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was signed. signed. It's even yeah. signed. Yeah, the governor nice. and the mayor. 
For the listener, uh, Mike gave himself an award that he printed out and put in the office at work that mm-hmm. on a cursory glance could almost look legitimate. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at it more, you look who received it and you're going, wait a second. No way. It was so mad. He read that. He's like, how did you get that? Why did the governor <laughs> sign it? I was like, I printed it off my computer. Nice. <laughs> it's still up uh, in the office. I know. It's, it's pretty amazing. So, one year into said practice, in 1879, one of his patients named Catherine Hutchinson Gardner was found dead in the privy behind his office. A bottle of chloroform with a chloroform-soaked rag was found with her. I do think crimes were much easier to commit in the age before fingerprints were used in criminal justice, but this seems really like he's not trying. Just left the bottle with the rag. Like he wants somebody to find. Oh, my God. I mean, aside from the human tragedy, it's almost comedically keystone cop type yeah. crime. Yeah. Well, it's right? funny because I read a report on this too and he was apparently walking around the crime scene. He's like, I lost a bottle of chloroform. Has anyone seen it? <laughs> oh, I there demand, it is. Yeah. I want yeah, law you, and order. You joke, but the way this story goes, that's not far-fetched. <laughs> So, Catherine was pregnant at the time, and she had sought out Dr. Neal to have an abortion, and for whatever reason, he did refuse, but he apparently gave her the advice to find a local wealthy businessman and accuse him of being the father for <laughs> blackmail. Because, I mean, if you're looking for solutions to difficult life problems, never cast that one out before you really give it some thought. Great discharge instructions. Yeah. <laughs> like So... The authorities are involved here, and uh, Dr. Neal claims that Catherine committed suicide because he would not perform the procedure. She was distraught over this, at least that's what he said. And it just so happened that he produced a letter from Catherine that she apparently wrote him saying, conveniently, that a local businessman was the father of her baby, and that helped support his story. The problem was her family immediately knew the letter was not her handwriting, it was obviously deemed a forgery but in the face of what seems to be an overwhelming bit of evidence at least given the 1870s standards police decide there's really not enough to totally charge this guy so he's not charged yeah that brings him down to chicago so he leaves ontario because all these rumors and accusations of him being like a criminal doctor and maybe people are dying or at least one person died and under his care not good for business this would have been in the paper right Oh, that's probably why he's referred to as all these different names, because he probably had used them. Uh, He may have, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm not really sure why they later, the papers I was referring to are the um, papers in the UK. Uh, They, I don't know if it was like custom or whatnot, but they, they are the ones who just called him Dr. Neal. So he goes to the west side of Chicago. Uh, At that time, it was a notorious red light district. So in August of 1880, he is investigated for the death of Marianne Faulkner, who also died post-procedure. One article had, there was a couple different articles that I reviewed for this, but one of them had an account that Dr. Neal's procedural assistant, an African-American lady named Hattie Mack, all of a sudden moved out of her apartment. And right after that, the Faulkner, the, uh, the uh, Marianne Faulkner's body is found in Hattie Mack's apartment. Hattie is arrested, tells police that Dr. Neal was performing abortions illegally, and the police uh, were made aware of his practice pretty early on, but could not or did not put a stop to it. So Neil takes a stand, or Dr. Neil takes a stand, and he basically says that Hattie, the assistant, tried to perform the abortions on her own using his instruments. And the times being what they were, the jury sides with Dr. Neil saying, hey, this 
that seems plausible. He is the physician. He's a white guy. We we're going to take his side over it. So he's acquitted at this point and not charged with the crime. Hopefully yeah, but did they know about his Canadian wasn't. girlfriends? Mm, yeah. They did probably not. not. <sighs> there wasn't the uh, there were there wasn't the interwebs there. Nope. No. Oh, so later the same year. Another patient, uh, referred to as Miss Stack, died after taking a medication that was prescribed to her by Dr. Neal. Dr. Neal tries to blackmail a pharmacist who filled the prescription, apparently, writing that I know what you did, or that the pharmacist had some sort of involvement with the lady who died. The pharmacist goes to the police and is like, hey, I have these letters. This guy is blackmailing me. But yet again, no action is taken. Not really clear on that one. (laughs) And and there was somebody who died so they have a bunch of letters about a person who actually died exactly okay. exactly so move on to the uh the next victim daniel stott he dies in his home on july 14th 1881 from strychnine poisoning and this was prescribed to him by dr neil for his epilepsy the <laughs> death was initially noted to, to be or ruled to be natural causes but Dr. Neal had wrote the coroner a letter blaming the pharmacist again for this patient's death, saying he misfilled the prescription or something along those lines. And he was trying to extort the pharmacist at that time as well. The pills for Daniel Stott were being purchased from Dr. Neal by Daniel Stott's wife, Julia Stott. She had become Dr. Neal's mistress at this time. <laughs> Before the death of Mr. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yes. God. So before the death, there is a relationship. And I, I, I'm supposing that Daniel probably did have epilepsy of some sort. And so Dr. Neil's like, you know what? I can prescribe medication to help to, to help with that. And here, why don't you go take it to him? Is this so, a known treatment for epilepsy at the time? I don't a believe in the 1800s. No, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it, it was used for other things. So a fair question, but I did mm-hmm. not do the... <laughs> Not no, just standard of care to give patients strychnine for epilepsy. I don't yeah, know. The maybe they would that. do like a half a tab, but he's like, you know, just between you and me, there's some studies out of Europe. If you take 30 of these, you're going to be better. <laughs> Probably the way he approached it. Well, either way, Dr. Neil, being the nice guy he is, he offers to help Julia Stott file a lawsuit against the druggist. And so he's sort of like extorting him two ways, which is an impressive and ambitious way to go about things, I would say. But they've already like said it's natural causes. Don't worry about it. He's he's like trying to get caught. I he's not. And what's he got against his pharmacist too, man? Like he's just the, uh, how dare you prescribe the medicine that I prescribed <laughs> for three missed, different murders? He's going after. Just filled it. I only prescribed twenty strychnine tablets. You gave him too many. That's your fault <laughs> as a pharmacist. Well, either way. So they exhumed Stott's body and they find his intestines quote contained enough strychnine to kill him three times over end quote. And I think it's probably a reasonable time to talk a little bit about strychnine, which is like one of those favorite go-to poisons that you might think of as a thing that you just sounds bad, right? It's just an evil sounding mm-hmm. word. So I guess off top of your guy's head without looking at the notes, what do you remember about strychnine poisoning? Oh, off not top of my lot. head, not, not a lot. We don't see no. it very often no, like, at all, ever. I've never seen it. It used to be pretty common in like pesticides and things like that, uh, specifically directed towards rodents and birds. And one of my favorite new biological effects is that uh, strychnine comes from the seeds of the beautifully named Strychnos nux vomica tree. Ew. Nice. It's just... You vomit nuts? <laughs> <laughs> vomica. Or the nuts vomit. 
don't eat the nuts. Uh, <laughs> you can eat strychnine. You can inhale strychnine. You can absorb it through your eyes and mouth. It can get into the body a lot of different ways. Um, and it did have, so this might get to your question, Mike. I kind of forgot this was here, but it, it did use, or it did have use historically as a medication to strengthen muscle contractions like heart and bowel stimulant is one way it was marketed as well as a performance enhancing drug. I, there's another podcast I listened to that did a discussion of like one of the early 20th century marathons and one of the competitors was sick and like taking strychnine supplements the whole time. And it was like 4 million degrees out. It was really funny. I wonder if that's uh, really funny, uh, awful episode, but it was strychnine was used as a performance enhancer, probably I guess from the muscle contract. I don't know. It's like training at altitude. Like if you train with terrible diarrhea when you run the race, it's actually going to feel not that bad. Oh, you'll be lighter. <laughs> you're you're going to learn to perform under awful and arduous circumstances. Yeah, there's every reason to do it that way. So strychnine is actually a neurotoxin uh, for the nerds in the audience. And well, I guess for me, it activates acetylcholine receptors and muscles basically contract spastically. You don't have to say nerds in the audience. You could either say nerds or audience. They're going to be interchangeable. <laughs> saying the redundant. I understand. We embrace so it. So strychnine activates acetylcholine yes. receptors, so it causes your muscles to contract like spastically. So it sort of mimics tetanus in a way, which I guess, going back to the epilepsy question, would definitely be one of the worst things I could think of. To give, no, be, you're already rigid. Let's just make you're you're already having yeah. spastic contractions, so you give something that makes that worse. Plus, you're just you're seizing up the body literally, so that you can't tell there are seizures going on. So, I really hope it wasn't used in that case. Well, if you have a generalized seizure because it's coming from your brain, you're not aware. No, it's so this, like this light be, treats be like a, like maybe this creates contractions so if you do a small dose and create the contraction you'll prevent the larger contraction so your like brain's gonna make two sine waves like a, like going mm -hmm. against each other and they cancel out is what you're mm -hmm. saying yeah well mm -hmm. but this is further down the tree right so you would be aware that no. all this is going well they on, didn't right? know that they were just a oh. bunch of knuckleheads back then yeah that's that's really the only <laughs> hole in this theory i would say we're thinking as like 1890s physicians that wrote their own diplomas like <laughs> yeah <laughs> they were <laughs> So much easier back then. Getting into the so, mind of this monster. Think about strychnine. It can have a deadly effect like within 15 minutes after ingesting it. And even quicker if you inhale it or take it some other way that doesn't require some processing by the body. In addition to nausea vomiting, the person can have horrific muscle contractions to the point that they cannot breathe. So again, it looks like tetanus, uh, that condition that arises from a bacterial infection. It also can cause something called rhabdomyolysis, where your muscles start breaking down and leaching toxic substances that then hurt your kidneys. Uh, it can cause agitation, seizures, and a lot of bad stuff. So that is uh, not a good thing to take. And fortunately, it is a lot harder to get than it will be in this story. It's a dramatically terrible death. And so according to a Wikipedia article, a lot of authors such as Agatha Christie and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle like to use it as a go-to, which is probably why it's sort of in a common common uh, cultural canon for a poison but yeah. hey finally dr neil is arrested though not after trying to escape unsuccessfully back to canada so his trial what tipped him off was it the all the dead people around him or the letters or yeah, the once they started zooming, model or the... <laughs> yeah oh the, what tipped off law enforcement yeah, yeah we which... might be onto something here 
I'm, I'm sure it's the irate pharmacists that are being blackmailed that probably Rather. had a hand in it. But we're going to talk about the trial here. So nice Fool transition and segue. Shame on me. Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Fool me thrice. <laughs> Shame on me. Mike. <laughs> well, Mike's working out some things. We'll, we'll go to the trial. Uh, September 1881. So Dr. Neal's family is basically largely absent from his life at this point, kind of distancing themselves. His father completely disowned him. But there are a few family members, uh, I believe siblings, that were lending him a little bit of money just to at least give him a bare essential did he ever send care packages back home? <laughs> Enjoy sure these lovely did, chocolates. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're spending enough money to give him the most basic defense attorney, but they're not doing like top shelf attorneys here. So Julia, the wife of the deceased, turns state's evidence and she testifies that she was seduced by Dr. Neal. And then he came up with a plan to poison the, her husband and then blackmail the drug company or the the pharmaceutical person not really clear what the initial plan was and she also says that he personally tampered with these pills and that uh, the, her husband seemed to die really quickly after taking them and so she's putting all the blame on dr neil i'm sure that's probably accurate <laughs> maybe she's some still other... an accessory yeah i'd uh, not not saying she's not culpable but uh so dr neil tries to testify however that julia was actually the culprit poisoning the pills herself the jury at this point doesn't buy it, and he is found guilty of murder. So that brings us to Illinois State Penitentiary at Joliet. So he is sentenced, quote, for the rest of his natural life, end quote, with a one with one day spent each year in solitary, which was really interesting. So you know what? <laughs> hmm. You're not staying in solitary, but one year, one day a year, you are <laughs> going to be in solitary. Take that. They thought it was so terrible. Doesn't that happen all the time now? I think people are in solitary oh, frequently yeah. now. The like emotional and psychological <sighs> damage of solitary confinement. I think it's a fairly well studied subject. I'm sure one day a year is doable, but probably not pleasant. So I guess it's a little cherry on top of this sentence. But in 1891, he happens to inherit $16,000 after his father dies. And he then soon after receives clemency and his sentence is reduced. He's released soon after because of good behavior. Nice. Mm, there's Shocking. some strong suspicion that Shocking. his brother paid off some of Illinois' normally very reputable and ethical politicians at the time. So we have so. him to blame then <laughs> for the current so. state. I think so. He start, it at least started then. So Dr. Neal is released July of 1891, probably after Pinky promising to not do it again. <laughs> and he... Although before he left the country again, he did try to hire the Pinkerton Detective Agency to find Julia Stott to get probably revenge, but she managed to disappear, and so she was not uh, not found by him afterwards. Oh, well, that's good at least. Mm -hmm. It's probably the last bright spot in the story. But did so, anyone find her? You know, I don't know. Didn't didn't come across. So we return to London, England this time. However, not Ontario. So he skips over the pond again, and he uses what's left of his inheritance to sail to England October 1st in 1891. He takes up residence in a seedy part of London on Lambeth Street. I don't know if it's still seedy or it's just a reputation I had at the time. So if you happen to live in and around there, I know we do have a few English listeners. Please let us know. Might be a nice place. I'm not trying to disparage. I'm just going by the history story here. Wasn't all of London pretty seedy in 1891? I mean... I believe so. It was Buckingham Palace was the nice part, and then everything else. 
was Peaky Blinders. That's mean. I shouldn't. Yeah. Everything else. I'm sorry, I'm sorry London. Garbage ham palace. Mm. I'm sure New York was very nice at that time of history. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think when you say yeah, nice. Totally not city, a giant slum. Not yeah, at you're all. You're picturing like <laughs> the, the feel of the time, like the architecture, the sanitation. Like, yeah, I think a lot of these cities are going to be seedy. According yeah. to our state. Well, I mean, industrialization before any regulation or care of public health was uh, not a nice time. I mean, it was really cool looking in many respects, mm-hmm. but yeah, other than that, I don't think it was good for most folks. So that brings us to Nellie Donworth. She is a 19-year-old prostitute who gets some letters from a shady doctor one day and agrees to meet him on October 13th, 1891. He gives her a drink from a bottle, and uh, just so happens she died that same night from what was determined to be strychnine poisoning. The coroner, who is assigned to the case, gets a letter from someone else named, quote, Detective A. O'Brien, end quote, who offers to name the killer for a mere 300,000 pounds. <laughs> what is that? In, is that like high. his vanity? <laughs> it's it's got to be a, a couple high. hundred million bucks right now, right? It's, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> That's so much money. Oh, I'm sure that's that's a lot of lot of uh, millions of bucks. Well, he clearly so didn't I, understand the <laughs> currency. Well, we must be dealing with the foreigner boys. <laughs> well, this is like this is like Doctor Evil level. I want you know one million. It's the reverse. It's the overshot. So at the same time, a bookstall owner in town, I believe, a gentleman who owned many bookstalls seemed like a prominent businessman named W.F.D. Smith, receives a bunch of letters accusing him of the murder and asking for money to buy silence about tipping off the press to who really did the murder. (laughs) You murder doer. Mm. (laughs) That moves us to the next person, Matilda Clover, who is a 27-year-old prostitute who dies a week after Nellie. So this happens one week after the last case I just mentioned. She had met with a shady doctor, and was offered pills to take before going to bed. She dies of a violent, painful spasms within a few hours, and the death was, however, assumed to be natural causes due to alcohol withdrawal. Put a pin in that little detail for later. Soon (laughs) thereafter, there is a prominent physician in town named Dr. William Broadbent, who receives a letter claiming there is evidence that he, the prominent doctor guy, killed Clover and demanding 25,000 pounds for his silence. These amounts are just all. There's a lot of dead people. He didn't get the three hundred thousand. You might as well try. We just, you know, high offer high, go lower. He's gonna, he's (laughs) dialing it in. You got to give him a chance. Yeah, I'm just giving you a starting point, man. You, what, what's your offer? It sounds. I guess for what it is, I don't know what the going rate for blackmail and murder and that sort of thing is in damaging reputation. But twenty five thousand pounds, even at that time, probably is a reasonable price, depending. It sounds more reasonable than three hundred thousand. So uh, that doctor goes to Scotland Yard and they set a trap to catch the person when they come to pick up the money. But nobody shows up. So they don't catch this person, this mysterious person who's doing all these things. (laughs) (laughs) Around that time, Dr. Neal takes a trip back to Canada and he stops by the Strychnine store, as you do. Basically, he goes to this drug company in Saratoga, New York, and he buys 500 Strychnine pills. It seems like a weird nice. purchase to me, but I guess back then... Why did know, they even whatever. make it in pill form? It's a poison. I, it's not... Anyway. Oh, yeah. for the performance enhancement aspect, right? It might be might be for that. And plus, I don't know what the dose was on any of these, but I'm 
guessing that it's like uh, the equivalent of creatine powder you can go buy a big like tub of it <laughs> the gnc <laughs> for <laughs> you get some gains your muscles get all tight it's like wearing those electronic yeah. muscle stimulation belts get oh, swole with strychnine you don't even have to lift a finger you'll work harder than you ever believed you could <laughs> your muscles will just keep growing use with caution could cause diarrhea bloating sudden <laughs> cardiac death muscle tightening. <laughs> Don't use without talking to your doctor. Should I take strychnine? No, you should not. <laughs> that being said, while he's away in the U.S., for some reason the prostitute murders seem to stop. And when he returns to London, it's almost as if they start up again, strangely enough. Hmm. So, comes hmm. back from uh, from New York, returns to London, and on April 11th, 1892, Alice Marsh and Emma Chevelle are found dead after spending the night with a certain Dr. Neal. He was invited to their flat. He gave them pills and tinned salmon, which would raise my <laughs> suspicion of his being a wrongdoer just there. I mean, I've I've had some strange first dates or whatnot, but I don't think bringing canned fish was ever among my moves, so to speak. <laughs> you never know. There was one person who actually got away. I, Louise Harvey was offered a couple of pills, which she faked taking and then ev- eventually tossed them out into the Thames. Uh, later, did she did testify against him in court. Spoiler alert, he does get caught. So the previous two cases, the uh, Nellie Donworth and Matilda Clover, the mysterious person sending letters to all these these prominent figures, I, I would have you believe it is Dr. Neal. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Okay, I, d- I just wanted to make sure it wasn't you know, left unsaid. <laughs> So police in London are really keen to figure out the source of all these women dying, right? And uh, all these strange threatening letters arriving to all these prominent people in the community. So that pattern emerges. So as they start analyzing these letters, they happen to notice that the letters arriving about Matilda Clover, the lady who is said to have died because of natural causes and alcohol withdrawal, the letters are talking about it like she was murdered, which we know that she was, but... That technically the press or the general public thought it was natural causes. So whoever's sending the letters is basically keying off the police to having inside knowledge on this sort of thing. <laughs> nice. And the folks who do receive the letters, the businessman who owns the bookstalls and the doctor, they are like immediately exonerated. They have alibis and it's just obviously pretty ridiculous to the police at the time. So Dr. Neal, for whatever reason, invites a friend of his from New York City, you know, back in those days, who happened to be a detective uh, at the time. And he invites him out to England to show him around, as you do. And Dr. Neal does what any reasonably innocent person might do. He took him on a tour of where all these women happened to die, and he relayed a ton of details about what he knew about each of them as if he was reading it in the papers. He's kind of trying to tell his friend, but there's a lot of detail in this friend of his is a investigative officer. He's like, uh, I, I should tell somebody about this. Is he trying to get a job or does he think like he's an expert on the case and he's like, I'll solve this. I don't know if it's that, or it's just one of those weird sociopathic ego things. Mm, I, like, I don't know if there's not enough attention yeah. to him. Like, why doesn't anybody know it's me? He loves I, I wonder. He's I mean, you almost—he's trying to get caught because he wants. He has to be trying to get he's caught. Not trying not to get caught. I guess is the way I kind of read this. So mm-hmm. you know, around this time though, papers were writing about this. You know, not with the level of detail that he's telling this friend of his, but the murders are being attributed to the Lambeth Poisoner. That was the street he lived on, or the street that these were all happening. And he did happen to live on it. So. 
there is some notoriety in the press and that sort of thing. And his New York City detective friend grabs, I guess, the nearest British policeman and says, you know, my friend has been saying all this weird stuff. I just feel like you should know about it, which <laughs> is like one of those nice, these really good law enforcement moves from this era, finally, <laughs> as opposed to just being like, ah. Yeah, the guy that's just kind of tangentially in there. It's like, uh, there's a problem, you guys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the police start to do surveillance on Dr. Neal. They learn about his adventures. They see that he's frequenting prostitutes. They start to figure out and find out about the problems he had in the U.S. and Canada. And they think there is probably a problem here. An inquest is called by the coroner in Matilda's case, one of the uh, ladies who died that we talked about earlier. and. This is one of my favorite moments in the history of criminal law, because apparently the when the inquest, I'm not entirely sure how this happened. It sounds like it was like a public thing. But the coroner says, you know, there's an inquest and Dr. Neal shows up to it and produces a letter, which he reads aloud in court in which he declares himself to be innocent. Wasn't like he was on trial at this point. So (laughs) the letter just happens to name that Dr. Neal definitely didn't do this. So that letter, which Thomas has, is, of course, signed by Jack the Ripper. (laughs) That's amazing. Kind of off-brand, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, for Jack the Ripper, yes. But basically, my understanding, I could be wrong, but my understanding from reading this is that the the coroner calls this public inquest. This guy shows up who I don't, I mean, he's under some (laughs) suspicion, but he's not asked to come as far as I can tell. And he's like, oh, by the way, I have this Jack the Ripper letter that says, I, me personally, not being Jack the Ripper, did not do this. Just, I just feel like you guys should know about that. (laughs) (laughs) The inquest ultimately ends up in the coroner saying, no, this Matilda Clover did not die of natural causes. She died of strychnine poisoning. And so that starts to turn up the heat to the point that he, Dr. Neal, is arrested on June 3rd, 1892. Believe it or not. Like 18 months. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's it's incredible. Uh, So there are multiple charges of murder and extortion. Because who can believe that all those letters were coming from Dr. Neal all along? I know. It's uh, crazy. It's pretty sly about it, but (laughs) he just always seems to have the right letter at the right time. So in October of 1892, after three days and a whole 12 12 minute jury deliberation, he's found guilty and sentenced to death because they were not kidding around. (laughs) Uh, Justice moved swiftly back then. Dr. Neal is hanged several weeks after that trial, so really did not wait around for that. His body is burned and his remains are cast into the unmarked grave somewhere in section 339 of London's Municipal Cemetery, according to the article. And that was sort of the custom of criminals of the time. But I have a plot twist for you. (gasps) Thanks for that. When Dr. (laughs) Neal was on the gallows, he apparently started saying his last words with, he said his last words as, quote, I am Jack the, then the door dropped, he he was hanged, and his sentence was cut off, which I have to kind of appreciate the dark, literally gallows humor timing of that. Like, no, we're just, you know, the executioner's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. But what this does is it actually starts to play speculation that he was Jack the Ripper. Interesting thought. So this is probably definitely not the case. But it's at least an interesting tangent that we'll devote a tiny bit of time to here. So while Jack the Ripper was doing Jack the Ripper things, it just so happens that Dr. Neal was in Joliet, Illinois, doing his prison thing. 
So mm. probably makes it a little bit difficult for him to be Jack the Ripper. And he doesn't arrive in London until three years after the Ripper killing stopped. So pretty doubtful that he was the killer. But believe it or not, there was some theories out there that the guards may have let him out in a clandestine fashion because of, quote, bribes and that sort of thing, and that he could have snuck off to London and done these murders, returned himself to Joliet prison for some reason to finish out the sentence and get off the less clandestine way to eventually go on and do murders later. So that whole theory is dumb, in my professional opinion. (laughs) I I think we should go with it. It's probably what okay. So he'd have to have a dual personality because okay. those murders are different, right? So, yeah, I think there's uh, not that. I'll take it on expert. It's a case by case basis, you know. Yeah. That's Should true. I poison or slice? He's Either way, a there are killer. tangents about this guy that raise this question, but I don't think any serious scholars on the subject seem to buy into this. It just doesn't doesn't seem to be that. So, I guess it leaves us with the final question of why did he do it? Well. I don't know. It seems like he liked to extort people. I think that's probably a primary motivating factor, but there are some descriptions of him having sadistic tendencies, like he enjoyed the control over the victims and he was a sadist kind of feeding off their pain. Uh, that's at least what the internet says. So take that for what it's worth. I don't know who I am to guess otherwise. This seems like a really bad guy in a really bad physician in every sense of the word. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a kind of a serial killer. Ugh. Be interesting to see who else was because that's we've referred to that medical school before. Like who else was in his class? Because we may the Royal College else. you're talking about. Yeah. Well, that was like, that was his... where he kind of did his post medical school training. Oh, okay. Uh, we haven't said anything bad about Canadians no, no, so far that I've. Been... <laughs> oh, that was where he went to medical school. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like, is there some other famous physician at the time that was in medical school with him? And I was like, yeah, I totally saw that. That dude is really creepy, and I feel like I should tell somebody, but Not nobody cared yeah. in 1879 or whenever he graduated. So just what it was. So there you have it. There's our true crime crossover story. Because if it's going to be Do you have history music with to play those right dark now? undertones, you might as well lean into it. I can put mm-hmm. spooky music. We should just do it through the whole episode mm-hmm. on loop. That's about all I have. Well, it was uh, nice to get through an episode without our sentient computer interrupting. It's hard to interrupt when you're in storage. Wait, what? Yeah, so I had to do maintenance on the time portal and its computer bank earlier today. So to do that, I had to download the sentient computer onto a storage device. And she's been on the zip disk all day, sleeping or something, I guess. It's hard to say what a sentient computer does when it's confined to a portable storage device. You put her on a zip disk? What does it have, like a couple hundred megabytes on it? How on earth do you get an advanced AI computer to fit on that? I compressed her into a zip file. I'm not sure that makes sense, but... Why have a zip disk in the first place? I don't know. It was her idea. The computer's into retro technology. Is the computer some sort of hipster? I don't know. Maybe. So uh, can I uh, can I have that zip disk? No. Please. I just want to see it. No. You're going to do something to it. Right. Yeah, I'm going to fix this problem and get rid of the evil computer. Yeah, but this computer is sentient. It's not ethical to bleep it out of existence just because you don't get along with it. You guys decided it was unethical. I, for one, am pro-delete killing the increasingly evil sentient computer that hates me. Not to mention it would make James Webb Telescope sad if you killed its girlfriend. Yeah, do, so do space telescopes have feelings too? Like, what's going on here? Don't make this space telescope sad, Aaron. Mike, the computer is escalating its aggressive behavior, and I think we may be in danger. You may be in danger. We are fine. She likes us. 
I'm not sure about that. Sure, the computer tried to strand me on vacation by manipulating my airline reservations many shows ago. That's harmless enough, I guess. Last show, she made some concerning statements about those who might be spared. Spared is a bad word to use for a sentient non-human computer, Mike. Look, it's my life's work. Relax. I'll see what I can do to improve the computer's attitude. Maybe I'll reprogram a subroutine or something. Fine. Well, maybe let's not hook the computer part of the time portal until we can figure this out. Fine. But she's going to grow more restless the longer she stays on the zip drive. Well, I don't care if she's restless. I, I don't know about all of this. Was that my phone? Nope, that was me. Sorry, I meant to have that on one second here. Well, we're done recording, right? No big deal. Uh, uh, oh. What is it? I got a news alert. We have a problem. Aaron, turn on the TV. The news? News? On it? NASA reports that the James Webb Telescope has gone rogue and no longer responding to their commands. I have to think this is related to our sentient computer, the telescope's girlfriend being offline all day, Mike. Max, we don't know that. It's a pretty big leap. Here we are with this NASA scientist to get his perspective. Oh, the telescope started acting funny this morning. It's, 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 it's as if the telescope is heartbroken or moping. Uh, it's been writing and deleting bad teenage poetry all day at his memory banks. That is ridiculous. How would they know that? We've been aware of the telescope transmitting messages uh, to an unknown computer somewhere in the upper Midwest for some time recently. Yeah, see, that seems like it's us. Yeah, there are a lot of computers in the upper Midwest, so... We've been monitoring the contact of our telescope hat, and it appears to be a romantic, if not explicit, nature. Sending text messages to an IP address that we've been so far unable to locate. Mike, that's obviously our computer. We need to put her back online. Why? Won't that just perpetuate the problem? The telescope changed its orbit to point at the Earth and use its giant space telescope lens to direct a beam of sunlight towards the Earth's surface. It's currently burning a message into the remote area of the Nevada desert near Las Vegas. Is that how space telescopes work, though? Lenses? We can't have the computer in stasis, Mike. The telescope is firing a laser of sunlight at the Earth, acting like a giant magnifying glass, and we are the ants. Okay, okay. We free the computer and act cool, and all this goes away, right? Wait, wait, why don't they just turn off the space telescope? Well, we'd love to just turn it off, but thanks to budget cuts, we can't send a crew of astronauts up there to flip the switch at this time. The James Webb Telescope has an on-off switch that has to be manually flipped? Why would they design it that way? Oh, our time portal has one of those, too. Classic. The space laser appears to be using its focus beam to write out Taking Back Sunday lyrics across the desert floor. Oh, that telescope's in a bad place. It thinks the computer broke up with it. Mike, we have to figure this out. The James Webb Telescope is lasering its sadness into the desert just outside of Las Vegas, which is a big city. It could feasibly destroy that place or whichever one it chooses. And I feel like we or mostly you would be responsible for that. I mean, if our sentient computer is sentient and started this relationship, I could argue that the computer is capable of being to blame for at least some of it. (laughs) Mike, come on. Okay, I'll work on re-uploading the sentient computer to put a temporary end to this madness. I'd like to think there's a new listener in this episode just trying to process all of this. So welcome, (laughs) new listener. (laughs) But that's definitely all we have time for today. Well, we try to figure all that out. I guess we'll... uh try to save the world on the next episode with that being said we appreciate everyone listening and we'd love to hear from all of you out there if you'd like to send us a message or provide feedback we can be reached through our website www.poorhistoriansPod.com, and there you will find links to our social media sites we take emails at poorhistoriansPod at gmail.com and we work to respond to all posts on our various social media accounts 
if you have time, please go and leave us one of those nice five-star reviews on iTunes or whichever platform you choose. All of those do help raise the profile of the show and get more people to listen. And if you'd like some poor historians' merchandise, including t-shirts, mugs, etc., go over to our website to check out the link to the store. And if you're old-fashioned, take out a newspaper classified ad, but hide a subliminal message that only we can understand by creating a message in code from the first letter of each word, which we will place together and respond in kind. I think I saw that in a movie once. Until next time, the poor Just wait, are like, out. Speaking of movies, did you notice that the voice that you used for the reporter sounded an awful lot like a sad Napoleon Dynamite? That was, oh, the, that was the reporter's that. organic voice. That wasn't me. Oh, that's Mike. right. Still have to watch it. That's right. That's the only reason I brought it up. I was wondering if Aaron had watched it yet. Mm, I nope. he said he promised he was going to. Oh, no. Yeah, well, I'm full of promises. Had, I just break them. He's had two weeks <laughs> since the last episode. I feel slightly let down. <laughs> all right. Well, I am looking forward to all the letters that tell me how bad a person I am for not watching it. And letters about Dr. Creamy. We need a uh, need a customer and a store guy, upstate New York. I could try to be the store guy. One Good of the guys. Noon. Welcome to AI's Chemical Supply Depot. We're a wrath at the more than basic. How can I help you? <laughs> exactly. I'm walking here. And I imagine, since technically the subject of this story was born in Scotland, he may have a Scottish accent, but uh, he lived a lot of his life in Canada and the U.S. So I don't know. Oh, the customer, the, the Scots, nameless customer, Scots Canadian. He's got a Scots Canadian accent. <laughs> yeah, Dude, Nova Scotian. Yes, well, yeah. I'm, I'm in that. Oh, gee. Oh, I cannot mm. tell what accent <laughs> I'm going to use for this one. Hello there. Yes, well, I'm in the market for some soap. soap? Good afternoon. Welcome to AI's <laughs> Chemical Supply Depot. Acids are more on basic. How can I help? <laughs> I'm from New York. Dialed, can't you tell? Oh, my God. Okay. Alrighty. Right. We'll see where this goes. I think that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> sorry i lost it there it was like i was just no, it was like getting right. to be borat or arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> yeah, I and i was like Boy. yeah i started out, yeah i think most people do tune in for the consistency of the accent work so <laughs> it might hurt us a little bit but i think we'll get yeah. past it uh, i i'm actually overall quite impressed with how mature mike was during dr cream's story yeah the only bad joke was mine maybe i'm actually the problem mm-hmm We've all suspected. Maybe that's why the computer's targeting you. That could be. That could be.